Hello and welcome to Digital Insights, featuring topics from the BoagWorld.com blog. My name is Paul Boag and on this podcast I offer advice on user experience and digital transformation. Today I want to share with you how I go about approaching the design of a landing page. Because whether you're a marketer or a UI designer, sometimes it can feel like people expect miracles from us. They want us to boost conversion through compelling copy and gorgeous design as if we can wave some kind of magic wand. But with over 23 years experience in the field, I can tell you that I still don't really know what it takes to make someone act on a website. But I do at least have a methodology that will result in a landing page that will convert. And it's this methodology that we need to use and more importantly, introduce our stakeholders to. So without further ado, let's jump in. Step one is to define what success looks like. Before I can create a landing page that's a conversion machine, I first need to define what conversion looks like. Now, you may think that this is a straightforward matter and too obvious to mention. However, in my experience, that's rarely the case. Sure, on face value, the call to action for a landing page may seem obvious. It may be sign up for a newsletter or complete a contact us form or buy a product. But is that all? All too often, stakeholders start adding in other calls to action as well. How many e-commerce sites have you visited that were supposedly trying to persuade you to buy only to display a newsletter sign-up overlay the minute you arrive on the site? Or what about those sites who want you to contact them but then distract you by requesting um, you to share their content on social media or follow them on Twitter? To design a landing page that converts, I need to have a laser focus. I need to be 100% sure what I want users to do and not get distracted by secondary calls to action. Also, I don't want just anybody to fill in my contact form or sign up to my newsletter. I need to get the right type of person. And that's another criteria that defines the success of your um, landing page. What audience you want to attract. So step two is identify who you're trying to reach. I can't create an effective landing page unless I have a crystal clear picture of who I'm trying to reach. Too often target audiences are too woolly and too wide. If I decide to appeal to everybody, I'm inevitably going to appeal to nobody. Different people will be motivated to act uh, by different things. And if I'm trying to appeal to a broad, poorly defined audience, I can't hope to tailor the message sufficiently to be effective. In short, when it comes to creating a compelling landing page, the more specific your audience is, the better. That's why one-to-one sales is so persuasive. It allows the salesperson to tailor what they say to a specific person that they're speaking to. Now, we might not be able to go that far. But the narrower I am in targeting my landing page, the more effective it will be. And that's why you're better off having a large number of landing pages than having, say, a single homepage. Once I've clearly defined my audience, I can look at their journey and tailor the landing page accordingly. And that brings me on to step three, which is understand the user's journey. You see, when it comes to a successful landing page, context is everything. How the user arrived on the landing page can make an enormous difference to the design of that landing page. For example, a user arriving via, say, a Google search will have very little knowledge about your offering compared to a user who's first read one of your blog posts. 
Our landing page should be tailored not just to our specific audience, but also based on what the user's experience was that led up to them ending up on the page. Then there's the question uh, of what happens after the user has left the landing page. If a salesperson is going to contact the user, the landing page only needs to convince the user to hand across contact details. It doesn't need to do the hard work beyond that because the salesperson is going to do most of the work. However, if the rest of the process is automatic, the landing page needs to reassure and motivate users to ensure that they don't later suffer from buyer's remorse. Only once I've understood this kind of context for the landing page can I start to consider its messaging when I move on to step four, which is outline the benefits and features. With my objectives, audience, and their context front and center in my mind, I can start to think about the messaging of my landing page. When I start writing copy for a landing page, I need to start with communicating two things, the offering's features and its benefits. Take, for example, the newsletter I offer on this on my blog. The benefit of signing up is that it enables you to become an expert in user experience. The features, on the other hand, is that every two weeks you will receive advice on improving your digital strategy, evolving your web presence and meeting the needs of connected consumers. In other words, features focus on what you get, while benefits are how that thing will help you. It's important that as I write the copy for my landing page, it accommodates both those benefits and features. However, features and benefits are not the only thing that my copy needs to address. People don't like taking risks, and that is what brings us on to point five, which is after we've created our benefits and features, we need to address user objections. Because people don't like taking risks, it means that when they're confronted with an offer, they will look for any risks involved in acting and identify any objections that come to their mind. And one of the most important jobs of a landing page is to address any concerns the users ha might have in a systematic way. That is an approach salespeople call objection handling. Once I've completed steps one to four, I tend to sit down and write a list of all of the objections that I can think of that would stop a user from acting. In fact, in some cases, I'll even run a survey to find out what those might be. With that knowledge, I then ensure that my landing pages addresses those objections either directly or indirectly. For example, an outstanding return policy can address a whole range of concerns such as what if the quality is poor or what if it's not a good fit for me or what if I change my mind. Note that you can't address all your concerns with just some clever copy. Sometimes you need to change the way you do business like offering a better return policy. Together with the benefits and the features, a compelling list of counter-objections will ensure that your landing page is as convincing as possible. But to encourage users to take action, you need to understand exactly what you want them to do. And that leads to step six, which is to be clear about your calls to action. I've already flagged the danger of having um, competing objectives. If the user is being asked to share on social media, sign up for a newsletter and buy a product, they're quickly going to be overwhelmed and fail to act. But it's also surprising how often I encounter websites that don't make it clear to the user specifically how they should take action. 
Before I start designing a site, I first look in detail at what the call to action is and how it will work. I want to ensure that I'm asking for, um, the simplest and most obvious thing possible from the user. I think carefully about the wording to ensure that it's evident not only what people should do, but I want them to do it now. I also work hard to simplify what's involved in acting by removing unnecessary fields and ensuring that it's going to be as obvious to spot as possible on the page. Finally, I think about where on the page it's going to be placed. There's a tendency to push our calls to action immediately on users arriving on our landing page. However, users are rarely ready to act straight away. I need to pick my moment, and that means I need to think about where I will place the call to action in the flow of my messaging. One method I've used to decide where to place the call of the act, uh, to action in the flow of the page is to think about the design from a mobile first perspective. And that brings us on to step seven, which is start design with mobile first. We're always being told to design mobile first, aren't we? But exactly why? In my experience, one of the biggest reasons to start with the mobile experience is to give you the opportunity to consider the mental process a user will go through when arriving on a page and how we can then accommodate that in our design. So, for example, when a user first arrives, the first question that they almost always have is, is this relevant to me? That means I have to start at the top of the page by clearly showing that the page, what the page is about and how its offer benefits the reader. It, um, if that's enough to keep their attention, then the next thing we need to, uh, that the user wants to do is understand the specifics. And that's where we talk about features. After that, it's time to deal with any concerns or objections that spring to the user's mind. And only after that do we ask people to act. By starting with the mobile design, it helps me to focus on the mental journey and prevents me from getting too distracted by composition and layout. Once I've got the in-page journey clear in my mind, then I can turn my attention to multi-column layout for larger devices, and that is step eight. Because by the time I come to designing for larger devices, I've already done a lot of the hard work. Instead, the key at this stage is not to undo the good work and simplicity of the mobile version. Because larger devices such as desktops provide more screen real estate, it's easy to include more elements and that increases cognitive load and overwhelms the user. The result is that they miss crucial messaging and even the call to action itself. When designing for these larger devices, I need to consider composition, imagery and layout and ensure that I draw the eye to the right elements at the right time. And that can be hard to get right. And is yet another reason why testing is so important. And that is my step nine to test and iterate. The truth is I usually suck at designing landing pages the first time, despite the fact that I've been producing them for 23 years. What worked last time I created a landing page will almost certainly not work next time. The objectives, the audiences and the journey will all be too different. It's almost impossible to create the highest converting landing page on your first try. It just doesn't work like that. The key to successful landing pages is to constantly test and iterate upon them. I will rigorously test any landing page I produce uh, for both its emotional resonance and its usability. Just because something looks compelling to you doesn't mean it will be appealing to your audience. 
Most of my landing pages go through multiple rounds of iteration before I launch them publicly. And even then, the testing doesn't stop, which brings me to my final step, which is to launch, to monitor, and to iterate some more. Although you can do testing before launch, the best opportunity is once your site has gone live, once your page has gone live. Then you've got large numbers of real users making real decisions, and that is a fantastic opportunity to learn how people respond to your design and your copy. It's a chance to do A-B testing, to iterate and improve your site. It's where truly exceptional landing pages are born. The problem is that many companies still have a launch and walk away mindset. But if you do that, you'll never have a landing page that achieves its potential. It's only by observing user behavior on your landing page and trialing different approaches that you will encourage people to take action. That's the secret of landing page design. It's not some design technique or persuasive wording in your copy. It's about continually testing and iterating on what you have improving its effectiveness little by little.